When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You're tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I am your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 45. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, where I spent last weekend chasing bird dogs through the northern forests of Minnesota, chasing grouse and woodcock, hanging out at camp, sitting around the campfires, listening to Kevin play guitar, listening to Jerry tell stories, watching bourbon bottles drain. Always a great time at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. It's one of my favorite, favorite places to go in the fall, any time of year really, but October's where it's at, at Pine Ridge. Check them out, pineridgegrousecamp.com. Adventure awaits. And 
by Onyx Maps, the world's most comprehensive mapping application for sportsmen and women. Download the Onyx Hunt app today from the Google Play or Apple iTunes store. You will not regret it. If you don't believe me, that Onyx Hunt will seriously change the game for you, the way you hunt, how you mark waypoints, how you save tracks, how you store all of your information for all of your outdoor pursuits. Onyx Hunt does it all for you and much, much more. Go to onyxmaps.com, download the Hunt app today. And by Gumleaf USA, that is Gumleaf USA at gumleafusa.com for a serious pair of tall rubber boots. I've been tromping around the grouse and woodcock covers. It's soaking wet out there. There's water everywhere. Matter of fact, I was out yesterday. I must have crossed three or four creeks. One of them would qualify as a small river. I never even thought twice. It was shallow enough. I walked right across. That's why I love my Gumleaf boots. I just keep going. They keep my feet dry comfortable seriously what more do you need check out gumleaf boots go to gumleafusa.com use the promo code pu2018 that's pu2018 that'll get you free shipping from gumleafusa.com this week's winner of the project upland podcast giveaway is kyle chambers kyle sent me an email told me he's a new bird hunter he's only been at it for a year or two he's been listening to the podcast he's been reading articles on project upland and believe it or not he's actually learned a thing or two from listening to my guests mainly reading the articles on the website Kyle went out and implemented them on a dogless woodcock hunt and found some birds. Kyle, that was an awesome story, man. I appreciate you sending it to me. And I really appreciate the fact that listeners like Kyle are getting value from the stuff that we are creating and putting out at Project Upland. It makes me happy, and it should make you listeners happy as well because Kyle's a new hunter. He's on our team now, and he's all in. You could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You go onto your podcasting application, click the little stars icon, whatever it is for a rating. Leave us a review that really helps us out and subscribe to the podcast. We love it when you subscribe. That will ensure you get each and every episode the moment I release it. Or send us some listener feedback, aka a guest suggestion, feedback on the shows, what you'd like to hear, or how you've been implementing what you've learned on the show to improve your own hunting. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email anytime. Nick.Larson at NorthwoodsCollective.com. All right, let's do it. Today's show coming up. Our guest is Mark Parman. Mark Parman is an upland hunter. He is an author. He is primarily a grouse and woodcock hunter in northern Wisconsin. He's written two books, A Grouse Hunter's Almanac and the more recently released Among the Aspen. I talked to Mark about grouse and woodcock hunting, his upland story, how he got into writing. We talk about his books. We talk about the season so far. We dissect a little bit of methods, tips, and techniques on grouse cover, hunting birds, and we share a few stories. We kind of cover it all. It is prime time in the Northwoods for grouse and woodcock hunting, and that is very evident in our conversation today. I hope you enjoy it. Let's welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Mark Parman. Welcome to the Project Upland podcast, and thank you for joining me this evening. 
I'm glad to be here and talk. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've been in communication for a little while. And uh, thankfully, you said you were pretty flexible. So I could kind of uh, call you at the drop of a hat. And uh, I sent you a message this morning. And, and we decided to chat and have a podcast. And I figured, you know, it's it's the middle of October. We're in primetime season. I figured we have plenty to talk about. And uh, you were in the woods today, Mark. How'd you do? Yeah, well, um, I went to uh, a cover. I saw I would have birds that... Uh I know at the end of, I forget the last time, I probably hunted in early December uh, before it really got cold and snowy. And there are a lot of birds left in there. And I was surprised I went in there. There was one bird that the dog actually pointed three times and I never really got a good shot at, at, at it and figured I didn't want to kill the only one in there anyway. So uh, then we went to another spot that I thought, ah, this, this place, probably nothing in here. Sure enough, there were seven or eight in there. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was a good day. So that first spot that you went to, you hadn't been back there since last season. I'm curious because I had a I had a spot like that that I hunted pretty late in January. It was one of my last hunts of the year. Well, early this year, I guess you would say. And we move. We happened to move 18 birds on a particularly nice January day. I haven't been back there yet this year, so I'm dying to get in there. What kind of uh, what kind of cover was it? Um, it's it's uh the one chunk is. Popple, it's, I don't know, it's probably 12 to 15 years old. There's a lot of really good mix cover in there, and uh, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of oak in there. I just, you know, I don't, I have no, no explanation for why there are birds in there. So it, it's interesting, right? You know, covers right around my, my cabin here. Out of Sarah County, just, it just doesn't seem to be a lot of birds. And, uh, but other places, it, it seems to be better. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's too many variables. There's too many. There's too many uh, things that uh, can kill grouse. So I don't know what happened. You're right about that. They're on the bottom of the food chain, and they have a. The odds are stacked pretty well against them. I mean, I give them a lot of credit for surviving and being the bird that they are. But you're right. It is very localized, at least from what I've found over the years. And you can definitely have some. Even you know, we always talk about the overall cycle and the the average of the drumming counts and how that sort of lends itself to be an indicator as to what we might see during the fall. But really, localized area versus localized area, you can see big differences even on an up year or down year. I mean, aside from that from that real overall trend, you can see big differences from area to area. Yeah, and I think you know, I think last year everybody's expecting this this banner year and it and it didn't pan out. And I think people start to bum out on that but i mean there's always even in the low year there's always birds out there so i guess you just gotta go out and walk them up yeah absolutely yeah and that's i think last year was a really good example of that and perhaps you and i both speak from a place of we hunt an area we hunt areas that are typically known for having lots of really good habitat so we, t- we can talk about a low year and say that we still found birds and i think we're both grateful to have those opportunities but i'm curious one thing that i noticed and a few other people sort of close in my circle noticed that last year like you said we had a we had really high drumming counts everybody had pretty high expectations you almost couldn't help it we got out there we weren't seeing the birds it was a really odd year. I was left scratching my head a lot, but then I felt like late into late October and then into November, December, and even January, my hunt started to improve. My season got better as it went along. And I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to that, but 
I had a few other people think the same thing. So I figured, what did you experience? Was that was that at all your situation last year, Mark? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I I saw a lot of birds last year. So when everybody was saying, "Oh, it's a bad year," it's <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I mean, I didn't I didn't think so. But again, I think it's just so subjective that you know, two different individuals with the same ability, same dogs, and you can experience totally different things. Yeah. Um, depends on where you're at, but. No, I think for me, late in the year, I, I know that week after it got deer season, I, I saw a lot of birds. Yep. Uh, before before it really got, you know, usually for me when it gets snow gets knee deep, I'm putting my skis on. And, but I did. I mean, I was I was riding my fat bike a mile north of my place here last year, and I I've never seen this. I had nine of them come out of, of uh, snow dens. It was, it was amazing. Wow. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. In fact, my wife didn't believe me, and I and I took her back there and showed her the holes. And, <laughs> um, and she got we got some really cool pictures you know with our wingtips yep, yep. no i mean it's like it's like a work of art almost so yeah absolutely um, Very so there, cool. yeah there were there were a lot of birds around i thought that's why this year has been you know it was pretty slow for me at the beginning and i was like man it seemed like there were a lot of birds around but you know last year but you know who knows what happens between january and september so sure yeah, absolutely. Well, and we had, we've had, we we chatted about a little bit before I hit record here. We've had some kind of, I would say, funky weather, not uncharacteristic for October, but the way that we got it right as October rolled around, typically expectations are very high for Great Lakes grouse hunters. It's the best month of the year. And we got nailed with a lot of wind, a lot of gray days, a lot of wet days for a good, good chunk of time. And now it went from basically full foliage to at least where, where I've been hunting, I'm sure you can confirm, but from full foliage basically to a lot of leaves off the trees in about five days last week. And and now the weather's dried up, the conditions have improved. I think we're in for some really, really good hunting over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I, I just look around my woods here. It seems like the oaks are the only trees still hanging on to the leaves. So yeah, you can you can actually see, you can actually see the shoot sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah. But for me, I've been finding, you know, a lot of grouse and, you know, blowdowns and really some nasty, nasty thick stuff. So those are always hard to, to shoot at, you know, no matter what time of the year. So I guess there's no easy shots. No, there aren't. There aren't easy shots, but there are some that are easier than others. And uh, I know the kind of cover you speak with blowdowns. And I'm going to ask you about that, but we're going to do that a little bit later. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I want to stop and rewind a bit and get a little bit of your story, Mark, for the listeners to share. Where did upland hunting begin? Actually, I almost forgot. Put us on the map for the listeners. Where do you call home base, Mark, and where do you do most of your hunting? Um, I live in really northwestern Sawyer County, which is northwestern Wisconsin. So I'm a couple miles from Bayfield County. But this is, uh, we just moved here uh a year ago, August, I have hunted most of my life in north central Wisconsin, um, north of Wausau. So it's this covers not new to me, but you know, looking for birds every day. It's I guess I'm finding new and new places every day. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. So so northern Wisconsin, and obviously right in the heart of grouse and woodcock territory, and that will be that will be a subject of. Uh, a heavy topic during our conversation this evening, but now let's go to the question that I was going to ask you is where did upland hunting begin for you and how did you get into this mess, Mark? Um, well, I grew up in Northeast Iowa, um, the seventies, late seventies. And, uh, I mean, that's, it's just part of the culture. 
but it was festive. So there was I, when I was in uh, high school, I went grouse hunting twice with my buddy and his dad in Northeast Iowa, Elmakee County, and uh, I, I never pulled the trigger on grouse. Didn't really know what I was just hanging along. Didn't know what I was doing. But for me, it was mostly pheasant hunting as a kid. Um, it was just just something we did. I think more than anything. Was it your family that got you into upland hunting? I'm curious curious about um, your start. Not not particularly. My dad was um, he hunted you know socially with friends, but like I, I just wrote a piece the other day. The first gun he handed to me was a bolt action Mossberg 410. You know, it was a right handed gun, and I'm left handed. So um, yeah, he was really. <laughs> He wasn't really cognizant of the uh, hunting scene, but um, so I had to sort of make it on my way. But I had a really good friend that, um, his name is Phil Costigan, that he's a DJ in La Crosse, Wisconsin right now, and uh, he and I just bummed around, and we ran a trap line, and um, I mean, we just basically went out and walked and small game on it, and you know, we'd shoot squirrels, rabbits, pheasants when we were kids, so that's how I got started. So pheasants in Iowa, rough grouse a little bit. Were there were there dogs in the picture back then? Uh, my buddy had a black lab, uh, but the dogs came later. When I, when I met my wife, her family, her grandfather and her father raised Vizlas, and they were from southwest Iowa. And I went to college, and, you know, you, you can't bring your gun to your dorm room and just never get out of hunting. Um, at least I did. And then when I met her, you know, I got sort of thrown back in the mix. You know, here's a gun, we're going pheasanting, which I thought was great. And uh, that sort of led to our first dog, which was a lime rotter, because at that time her family hadn't limey. So that's how we got into dogs. So up and hunting, a little bit back burner through college. I know that there tends to be, there's usually some kind of separation in that, you know, maybe you have that early exposure. And then I think it's common with a lot of people. There's a little bit of separation as you sort of uh, grow up a little bit, find yourself. And then there comes a time where... A lot of people dive back into it, and that's when they that's when they really get get hooked. So I'm assuming that maybe had a little bit to do with the move to Wisconsin. But how did you end up in Wisconsin, and more importantly, how did you end up becoming a grouse and woodcock hunting fanatic? Well, I think what happened for us is we. I mean, something I was you know a private land proposition, and I guess I you know one thing that really bums me out is you know you have to go up to the farmer's door and ask him for permission. And, you know, <laughs> You know, it's like, you do it. No, you do it. You know, you draw straws if he's going to go do it. But we wanted to move to a place that has, you know, millions of acres of public land, which for us ended up in Wisconsin. You know, for a variety of reasons. We, we like cold weather, too. We, we were getting sick of the warm summers in Iowa. So uh, we just, when we got married, we just said we're moving north. So um, that's how we ended up here. That's awesome. And so now it's grouse hunting and mountain biking and cross-country skiing. You live in the right spot, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I have I have no complaints. Um, I mean, I can you know walk from my door and hunt. I can ski from my door. I can mountain bike from my door. It's you know for us, it's it's an ideal life. Do you find a lot of grouse covers on the mountain bike? Yeah, I I, um, I mean even even skiing. You know, the, the Berkeley Ski Trail, which is half a mile away, and, you know runs thirty miles, and then there's you know hundred and twenty miles of mountain bike trails, and it all pretty much goes through public land. So. And they're constantly cutting, so you can see. I mean, I just ran into a fresh cutting the other day, so you know you mark them on your map, and you know you wait ten years and see what it's like. Easy as that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are those are three things that you know. Obviously, I love to grouse hunt. I I love to cross country ski. I got started in that when I was young. I grew you know growing up in Duluth. I mean, we've got got pretty good opportunities here, and I got into that. When I was younger, that was something that I sort of put aside for a while in my adolescence and 
young, young adult years, I guess, but I've recently got back into it in my late twenties. And now, I mean, that's, that's my favorite winter, winter pastime because I don't know if it's just another reason to be in grouse cover or I I do know one reason is that if I'm going to be, I like to get outside. I like to get fresh air in the winter and I like to do something that gets my blood pumping and makes me warm. I don't like to do things Mm -hmm. that where I sit and freeze. Yeah. It's not crust on your skin. You know, you could, in your pajamas and stay warm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right yeah exactly um, but i mean i do my dogs love to do it um and at least you know my youngest dog does a little bit what's called ski jarring i don't know if you're from ski jarring i am yeah um you hook the dog up and the dog pulls you my oldest dog he just looks at me like no i'm not gonna do that but i mean they my dogs are constantly in, you know in the winter they get to you know we have about five kilometers of trails around the neighborhood here and you know there's several spots where there's grouse so they're always getting in, into the mix, you know, just running with me on my skis. So it's good for them, too. Yeah, absolutely. The, the skijoring thing is I had sort of grand visions of doing that, and I bought the harness and everything. I, the, where I'm kind of limited, actually, is most of the trails, most of the trails that I can access uh, in Duluth don't allow skijoring, which I understand. I mean, the, the dogs can kind of rip up the rip up the skate deck a little bit, but there are a few opportunities here that I can do it. I just haven't, haven't sought it out, but, uh, it's something I've been, I've been curious about trying. And, and actually this summer I got back into mountain biking, which is another thing that I know you like. And, and that was sort of due to, I used to ride my bike when I was younger, but, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Mike kind of, uh, he kind of re-sparked my interest in mountain biking. And, uh, I got out that night and, Another another uh, motivator was I was taking my first trip out west to Montana, and I was looking for a way to get on the bike and get the dog out with me to increase the uh, the preseason conditioning, which I think worked out pretty well for us. Yeah, I think. I mean, my my youngest dog too. He, he loves to go on. You know, if I go running, he, he comes. If I mountain bike, you know, a, a shorter loop he'll come along too. It's yeah, it's for conditioning. It's it's excellent for the dogs, and it's another way to you know incorporate them in your lives. I mean, I, I like to do. I know I went and cut some firewood today in, in the woods here, and they jump in the truck and, um, oh, we're going to go cut firewood. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, whatever you can do with them, I think, you know, the more the merrier. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about your, your dogs now. So at some point, and if people have read your books, they will they will know this. If they have not, I will encourage them to, and and we'll talk about them here in a little bit. But at some point, you started hunting with English setters. So talk a little bit about how that came about. What what sparked your interest in the English setters, and then and uh, how you find find yourself with the dogs that you have today. Um, well, I had a really good friend, and it was actually my dentist in Wausau. His name was Ross Trigger, and uh, his brother in law is a guy named Dan Tempeck who raises. English setters, kennels, Alderwood kennels. He's in uh, Athens, Wisconsin, and and he just happened to have somebody uh, had you know money down on his dog, and then they didn't take it, and we were sort of looking for a dog, and he said, "Hey, you can get this dog," and he said, "Sure." So we sort of um, I just walked into our first English setter, and uh, you know I liked I liked the dog a lot, and uh, we've um, had setters ever since. What was it? that really drew you into it? I mean, what was it about that dog that you really liked that, that maybe you didn't see or, or it was just different than your other dogs? I mean, I, I, I mean, I think all dogs are different. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even within breeds, but the setters I've had, 
you know, they, they keep their heads up in the air. Um, they don't spend a lot of time ground scenting. And I think that makes them a little bit better of a grouse dog. Um, if that necessarily matters for a woodcock dog, but they're also, I mean, so, so mellow. I mean, I, I don't worry, you know, if somebody brings a one year old in the house, I don't worry about the dog snapping and, yeah. you know, bite, biting the, you know, I don't worry about dog aggression. I mean, it's just, there's, they're so friendly and, and, uh, so mellow that, uh, I think that's a plus for us if you have a dog in the house. So that's what I guess got us hooked. That sort of, you know, in the woods, prey drive, and then, you know, they can turn on and off when they're in the house or house bed. Yeah, those are all good traits. Those are things that I think a lot of us hear often when people talk about dogs they like, so that's, uh, that's yeah. very understandable. I mean, I think you, you'll find that in other dogs, in other breeds, too. Sure. And I've seen, I've seen setters, it's like, man, there's no way I want to hold that dog. So, it's yeah, sometimes I think it's almost a roll of the dice. I mean, you want a good breeder and you want... You want good genetics, but I, I still don't think that guarantees you anything. Yeah, absolutely. Do you like the white dog in the woods, in the grouse cover? Yeah, I think the only, I mean, we've had a little bit of snow. The only time they're, for me, in terms of hard, hard to see is, you know, they're almost snow camo, so you get a little bit of snow. Yeah. Um, they can be hard to see, but other than that, they're, in terms of at least sight, they're pretty easy to see. Yeah. Speaking um, of snow... Did you get any that far south last week? Um, yeah, we've had, I don't know, it snowed about three times. Okay. So, um, in fact, we had a, one really good day when it was, it was that day after the blow. It was just, it was just sort of lightly snowing. And I don't know what, what it was, but it seemed like kept the birds were not, they were hunkered down pretty well. So that made for good hunting. Yeah. Yeah, we uh like like we talked about a little bit. I mean, it's been some been some funky weather. We've had snowfall. I woke up on Monday morning at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp and the ground was snow covered and we ended up by the time we got in the trucks, got everybody loaded up and drove a little ways uh away from camp. We drove out of the snow and ended up having a beautiful October day in the woods, but again, anything can happen in October and and this October has certainly proved that. Yeah, it's like I, I think it's only a bummer if you get a lot of you know, if you get a lot of heavy snow on the leaves and yeah. you know, it's dripping on your back all day, that's that's not a lot of fun. But that little snow is, is a good thing, so Yeah. Yep, it reminds us all what is uh what is ahead and to cherish and enjoy each day we get in the woods, which hopefully is many. Yeah, as many as possible. So I've got some we got we're gonna get back to the hunting thing. I will uh we're gonna chew on that a little bit, but I mentioned your books, and so I want to talk about those a bit. I've got both of them sitting here next to me on my uh, little Upland Hunting Library slash uh, gun case. So your first book was A Grouse Hunter's Almanac, and then you recently followed that up with the 2018 release of Among the Aspen. Uh, very much enjoyed both of them. They are they're basically... Uh, I believe you or at least uh, the editors call them essays, but I call them stories. They're, uh, they're two books full of hunting stories that involve, for the most part, bird dogs, pointy dogs, double guns, grouse, and woodcock, and uh, they're a joy to read. So before we discuss them any further, where did the writing come into play for you, Mark? Were you always a writer, or is that something that developed over time? Yeah, I, was, I mean, I... I went to University of Iowa, and uh, my degrees are in, in English. Um, and I also uh, started writing when I was in college.
college, I, I wrote for the Daily Island, which is the college, University of Iowa newspaper, so I have a background in English and journalism, so, you know, those are just two natural subjects for me to combine, but, yeah, I, I, I wasn't much of a writer, like, say, in high school, but once I got to college, I, I, for some reason, I just became a voracious reader and writer, I don't know what trip to switch there, but I guess I've been doing it ever since. So a lot of people say... If you want to be a good writer, you should be, as you mentioned, a voracious reader. Would you concur with that? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I know any good writers who do, don't read a lot. I mean, I don't think reading guarantees you that you're going to be a good writer. Right. Um, I, I just think you need to read and see how other people write, so you can, you know, basically see how it's done. You know, in terms of the structure and, and how language is used. Yeah, absolutely. And so these stories that that eventually came together in books that have been published and and sold and and people read, where did they begin? Do you keep are you an are you an avid note taker? Do you get back to the truck and write down notes from your hunt? Do you keep track of bird numbers? Do you keep track of flushes? Do you write down where you were? Is that where these stories begin? Yeah, I, have, I mean, I have I have journals. Uh, I mean, I've always written a daily sort of a hunt log. I mean, that's just a, an entry for me. And I've got notebooks probably going back to the early 90s um, of hunts. And I, you know, I use those for reference, um, you know, for bird numbers and, you know, sort of prick my memory for, you know, what happened specifically on, on this particular date. So uh, I guess that's just sort of fodder. Um, but those are kind of fun to, you know, you can compare years, you know, you can look at, you know, is this really a bad year? And then you can compare it to the last 10 years and see, uh, you know, how things are going then too. So... I guess those are more a reference for me. Yeah, kind of along those lines, I have my sort of note-taking and journaling is still developing into what it is, but I have, it started with numbers, I guess, and maybe that's because I'm a finance and accounting guy, but but that's what really kind of sparked it for me was keeping track of of mainly flushes, flushes, and then, and now uh, I'm pretty rigorous with with tracking my hours because I want to know flushes per hour and and I pretty much track miles walked and and I do keep track how many birds I shoot at and bag and that sort of thing, but but then now I now I kind of keep each year I kind of am adding things, so I'm I'm adding location and whether it's general location or a specific cover, if I hunt a cover a few times and I come up with a goofy nickname for it, I'll add that. But what I'm finding now is that the more detailed these notes get is that I was, I was basically midway through the off season and I went back through my little spreadsheet where I'd kept track of my daily notes and I pretty much could visualize given the given the location and the day and everything and you know this is we're we're talking less than a year old so still a little bit fresh in my mind but I could pretty much visualize every I should say every grouse that I bagged probably not every woodcock but uh maybe that's just maybe that's just because I don't shoot that many grouse but but the point is it really did help to cement some of those memories in it and it helped me to relive some of that stuff so I can totally see how if you're writing these stories you know any kind of notes that you take on that day while it's fresh in your mind is certainly going to help you uh, reference and, and bring back some of those memories. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think it's, for me, I would have, I have to do it if I'm going to write. I just, I, I need that reference. Um, and I need the, I need the facts. I mean, my, my wife years ago bought me a, a you know, flush counter. <laughs> she says, no, you, you got to, you know, an objective counter here so you're not fudging the numbers. Um, <laughs> I mean, a book is even more so. I mean, I, I think one of my motivations for writing is just to have this record of, you know, I can go back and read this and 
and relive relive this. You know, if, if nobody anywhere buys this book, at least I have it, that I can go back and read it. So for me, that's you know, with the book, it's even more so. Yeah, I can totally see that. Uh, you know, having having read them, they they very much are. You know, their personal recollections and their for people that appreciate the things that you're writing about, it's very easy, I think, to enjoy that stuff. But but I can easily look at it from the perspective of, yeah, you took those notes and those journals one step further and really visualized them and, and wrote them out so that, you know, I think it's a reality that nobody can grouse and woodcock hunt forever. So if uh, if and when that time ever comes, you've got, uh, you got these stories, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the older I get, the more I realize that, you know, maybe you're out there hunting memories and stories. And, um, those, those are the most important things. I mean, I, I, you know, if you had all the money in the world, you know, how much would you pay for, you know, a day you could go out and you, you knew you could bag a couple of grouse. You know, if you were a dedicated grouse hunter, you'd, you'd pay thousands of dollars for that. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, like, it's invaluable, those things. And those are the things that matter. And I think those are the things that sort of define us, you know, those narratives that we tell about ourselves. So for me, it's, it's hugely important. Yep, I agree. I agree. So, a couple more questions on kind of on the on the books and the writing. But when you're, you know, so you decided that that you were going to write this book, and was that a was that something that was that an idea that came to you, or or did somebody give you that idea? Somebody put that idea in your head? Actually, the first I I published a book with UW Press, I think in the two thousand three or four, and they came to me and wanted me to do a second edition, and I said, oh, you know, I'm not really interested in doing that, but idea and I had this you know framework of this idea for some house woodcock cafes and, and they're like yeah send us a proposal so that's that's how I got my my first book with them and uh you know I think having my foot in the door really really helped because they're really not you know a publisher that's really geared towards obviously upland books but you know they have a few sporting titles so it wasn't something that was totally off the wall for them so right and then the second one obviously you know that, they must have sold enough of that first one that they take a gamble on me the second time. <laughs> I thought I thought that you just made you just made so many more hunting stories. You decided you had to write another one. Well, that's part of it. I mean, somebody, <laughs> you know, people always ask me two questions. You know, how's the book doing? And I always say, well, I, you know, I don't know because you know when they send me a royalty check in the spring, I'll know. But, and the other <laughs> question is, when are you going to write another one? And I'm you know usually saying, well, I I don't have enough stories yet to write another one, so <laughs> I'm going to make some stories. So, but I've been you know the last couple of years making some more. So. We'll see. Well, that's good to hear. Book three is not official, but uh, oh. avid avid fans avid fans of of Mark Parman and uh, fans of your first book. There is hope. You're still out there. You were out hunting today. You're still out there making stories. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, somebody like George Bird Evans amazes me. The number of books he has, right? And the fact that you know he was 90 and still hunting. It's like, man, if only I can make it that far. <laughs> yeah. How many How many books would it be on by that time? Oh, that's great. Okay, so one other question now. When are you like one of those crazy bands where you wrote, you know, you wrote a hundred songs for this book, aka wrote a hundred stories, and then and then whittled it down to twenty or twenty five, however many are in your books? Um, no, I I, I don't. It's not that many. I mean, there's always a certain number of stories that, and and who knows how many Russ drafts you do with things, and you're right, and it's like, well, that's that's nothing. That's a dud. So. I guess I don't have a, an official count, but there's always stuff that you don't include. And actually, in my last book, there's a couple that right at the end, it's like a couple stories. 
you know, from the, the last season I did, it's like, well, I got to write these, these two stories down. Um, in fact, one of them, and there was uh, Paradise Lost. A friend I mentioned earlier, Ross Drager, is a story about, we were reminiscing about it. And he's like, yeah, you should write that down. And I'm like, yeah, maybe that would be a good essay. So <laughs> there's a couple that sort of jumped in there at the last minute, too. One thing that I really, really enjoyed about most of your stories is that, and I think, like, I don't think anybody would be surprised by this, but you're you're great at setting the stage and describing describing the cover that you're in. And that, I mean, it's, again, I'm not even surprised why I like that so much because it just sparks so many memories and, and so many emotions within me. But the way that you talk about the red pines, the white pines, the oak, the maple, the birch. I mean, you, you mentioned those those trees, and you set the stage, and I I picture myself there, and and it's just, I mean, that's that's I think that's what everybody wants to read, especially when when you are, you know, it's the off season, and and uh, or maybe it's uh you know the the cold depths of winter, and you you just want to picture that stuff. But obviously, those things they spark similar emotions in you too. Well, I think, I mean, I, there's to me, I mean, I sort of break break it down these sporting literature into two big. Groups one is you know stories and then there's the how to there's so yeah. much how to stuff written. In fact, in my first book, I I sent the manuscript to another publisher who I won't name here, and editor was really interested in it until he read I had an essay called How to Hunt Grouse and it was literally you know a sentence or two long and it was you know find suitable cover and start walking you know and good boots and a dog help. Um, and he <laughs> read that and he got he got really mad at me you know and so it was really condescending and. I, I didn't know what to say. In fact, I actually, it's a little bit longer now in that book, so I added some, some paragraphs. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm not a huge fan of the how-to um, at, at all. I, I mean, I think in particular grouse hunters, because grouse hunters, you know, of any other upland tradition, it's, you know, there are hundreds of books you can buy about grouse hunting. You know, you think about pheasant hunting, there's, there's not that many, right? Yeah. And that pheasant hunting crowd is a much you know, there might be 10 times as many pheasant hunters as grouse hunters, so grouse hunters are pretty literary. They like to read stories, so yeah, great story, I guess. Yeah, I would agree, and I think, I'm almost thinking maybe in today's, it hasn't always been this way, and so I, I do think there are some great how-to books of the past, but I think with all of the different avenues and vehicles for media and content creation, you know, the book isn't necessarily the best place for a, for a how-to yeah yeah not the best place yeah. for a how-to i mean i mean i think i think a book is great for a collection of stories like this but but there are there's blog posts and there's videos and there's podcasts where we talk about how-tos you know i love one of my favorite interviews to do i've done it the last two years is ann jandernaw and I, I like to talk to her about grouse cover for 60 to 90 minutes and let people chew on that i mean that's a great way to learn how to find grouse i think yeah i mean, I, I think I mean, I think how-to is indispensable. Like Dennis Walrod's book, Grouse Hunting, I think is the title. Yep. Or uh, or Don Johnson's book, I think it's Grouse Woodcock Hunting. I mean, those, those are really invaluable books to me when I first started grouse hunting. But there's several others on the market that are just sort of knockoffs of that. I mean, I think that stuff just gets churned out. You know, it's almost, it's not plagiarism, but it's pretty close. Right. Um, um, but it's just not for me. I just don't want to write that stuff. It's not, it's like, you know, right now a recipe in some ways. So sure, yeah, yeah. I will. I will second the 
Uh, I don't believe I've read Dennis Walrod's book, but I have right next to my bed. I started, I cracked it open again before the season started. Don Johnson's Grouse and Woodcock Hunting. And, and I have a, I really like that book because it's, he was a Wisconsin grouse hunter. And he writes about hunting in Wisconsin. And, and, uh, in a similar way, he taught, he, uh, while it was a how to book, he really, I think he really strikes a lot of the, the nerves and emotions and, uh, talks about, you know, why he loves grouse hunting in that book. Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe why. But people like those books more than the others. There's there's a personality in it. There's there's some story in it. And I, I, I think it's in Johnson's book where he writes about that. Is it Vic Reinters? I can't remember. Like, uh, this old guy, from, old guy from Milwaukee that would drive north every weekend. And you know, he had like an old Model 12 and he was just this deadly trap shooter. And, um, I mean, that was a great story. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Uh, I don't know if I'm rec- recalling it. Correctly. Yeah, I can't. I can't confirm nor deny, but uh, maybe I'll. I might have to page through it tonight and see if I can find it. Yeah, he's he's in he's in there with his old Model Twelve. I think it was. <laughs> uh, all right, so so we'll move off the writing a little bit. But last thing for you, give us the give us the Mark Parman essentials for you. Go out in the woods. You go for a walk with the dogs. Hopefully, you flush some birds. You get back to the truck. What are you jotting down in the truck? Or at the um, or at the end of the day, I guess. What are what are those those things that you write down every time? Or maybe you don't have that much of a structure. Well, me, I I last couple of years when we moved here, I started using the, the DNR flight maps. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Yes, I am. Yeah, that, that shows the age cuttings, and then I have um, it's not the Delorme. I forget what the other map is where it shows you know it shows County Forest. Yep. Um, and it's a big it's a big atlas, and I'm I'm constantly marking spots on that so that's pretty much what i have in my truck it's more of a uh, you know where to go let's check this place out um, but i i tend not to and i don't i don't write till um i mean i just like an hour ago i wrote down the hunting i did today so gotcha um, that's what i do when i have a beer in my hand i guess <laughs> at the end of at the end of the, the day in the evening so that's a that's a good way to do it what's uh what's your favorite beer right now um oh there's too many <laughs> so actually Two kids that we used to coach cross country skiing just started a brewery in, in Duluth, Ursa Minor. Oh yeah, um, I keep hearing about this. I have not, uh, I haven't, uh, haven't had their beer yet. Yeah, Mark and, and Ben Hugus. They, I think they have another partner, but uh, we were up there a couple weeks ago and we stopped in there and uh, they had some great beer. But there's, there's just too many. <laughs> so, <but laughs> I think, I think actually uh, Ben Paddle. There's another good Duluth brewery. Yeah. Uh, ben Paddle, Golden Ale is maybe the beer that's. I've been buying most of lately. But, yeah, that, that's a good um, there, beer. There's, there's just, I mean, I go to the liquor store or the, the beer store in Hayward, and you know, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm paralyzed. Uh, yeah, you and me both. So the selection many, has, so uh, it's blown up. Yeah, yeah, it's a good time to like beer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, what better, uh, what better at the, at the end of a long day of hunting? That's good. So, yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll have to remember that if, if I'm struggling to, uh, to jot down some notes, maybe, uh, maybe try a little, uh, journal fuel, a little beer. Yeah. Yeah. I know, uh, I know some, some guys like bourbon or, or like whiskey. And yep. Whatever. Mountain Dew, you know, coffee. Coffee's always good too. Or, um, maybe coffee and a beer if you need an up and a down. <laughs> yeah um all right mark what do you love for people that haven't read your books i think you know if they have they'll get a sense of this but what do you love about grouse hunting well i mean i think there's a lot of things uh to love me I, I love the dog work and i think the older i get the more thrilled with the dog's point rather than you know having a bird in the bag i mean obviously you want you know that 
feel of that warm body in your in your game bag. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I love the dog work. I mean, I, I like being out in the woods. I like you know I I do deer hunt. But one thing about deer hunting is just so much sitting and patience. And I'm not so good at that. I guess I'd much rather be walking around exploring. But also, I mean, it's just I mean, like today it was 40 degrees and dark, deep blue sky, and you know the smells, the sights, the sounds, things. You don't want to go inside, right? It's like my wife, when we were hunting today, she goes, I don't want to go inside. Well, we got back home, so she was finding things to do outside, you know, raking. And started a fire out in the fire pit, and you know, I went and got some firewood. So I, I think if you like to be outside, it's the best time of the year. Yeah. I absolutely agree, and I and I concur with a lot of those things. That the you know we had talked about cross country skiing earlier, and how you can go out in the middle of winter and have a really really nice enjoyable ski and be warm and comfortable. And, and grouse hunting in in that way is similar. You know we don't quite have our winter blood up yet, so uh, you know thirty thirty five to forty five degrees still feels pretty cool. But you get out and start get off the trail and busting some brush and pretty soon you're going to be warm and comfortable and breathing a lot of fresh air. I mean, that's, that's it for me. I think is the, like you said, deer hunting, I can, I can absolutely sit in perfect enjoyment in a deer stand for some amount of time and enjoy the scene and the setting that is in front of me. But with grouse hunting, you get to see so much and you get to, you get to keep moving and, and discovering new places. And that is, that's really become a joy for me, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a totally different kind of hunting, obviously. But I think one thing too is, I think the prey drive. One thing that interests me is, you know, how we evolve as hunters and how that's deep inside us. And I almost think it's a compulsion. You know, it's like this deep voice in you telling you, you know, to go do this in October. And that when you obey that, it, it feels good. I don't know if that makes any sense, but for, for me, it's almost a compulsion. That you know, I, I feel driven to go do this at this time of the year. Well, it's got to be something because I took enough uh, aspen saplings and uh, and the alder whips to the face over the last you know couple weeks, but uh, I'm I'm just dying to get back out there. Yeah, I, I just I mean that's that's a small price to pay. I, I just pulled a blackberry thorn out of my hand that was buried in there for <laughs> last week. But I mean, go look, go look at your dogs do themselves. I mean. When your dog runs with its tongue out, its mouth, and you know through the blackberries and breaks its tongue to shreds, and they're laughing, smiling, and having a great time. So I, I think it's that sort of compulsion, maybe. Yeah. But uh, when, when you when you engage it and do it, it just you feel so alive, and you know this is life. You know, you know, compare that with buying chicken at the supermarket. You know. Yep. Again, that's a great example of of the dogs, obviously, and it's a very clear one. If it wasn't clear enough to people with their own desire to get out and and chase these birds through the places they live in it it takes one walk in the woods with a with a hard driving bird dog to realize wow i mean look at look at the drive behind that dog and look what he's doing to himself he or she putting themselves through just to just to get a whiff of that that bird i mean that's pretty incredible yeah i think i think dogs too you know dogs are sort of you know, come into our world and, you know, domesticate themselves, just like we've been so domesticated that, you know, we go back to that, we feel, I mean, it just pulls us back to that, who we were once. And I think we really love to do that. And it, it's intensely pleasing to us. So I, I think it's sometimes hard to even describe to people that don't do it, but you know what it's all about. Yeah, I agree. So I said we would we would circle back a little bit to the hunting and and obviously we started there with with sort of what drives you out there. But fast forward to 
right now, today, the 2018 bird hunting season, you hunt Wisconsin. Uh, I've talked about it. I've had a number of guests on the podcast, Mark Wateka from the Wisconsin DNR over the summer, and uh, Ann Jandrana, who is a who is a Wisconsin grouse hunter herself, and 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 has a vested interest in in grouse population. So we've talked about some of the the causes for concern and I know you uh you were somewhat vocal about it when when the uh the seasons were being proposed to be shortened and and here we are today it's middle of October right in the prime of the season the Wisconsin DNR well I sh- I won't say the DNR it was the conservation, conservation yeah conservation congress they they ultimately shortened the season to December 31st and uh and so we lost a month off of the season you know and that was it was a very interesting scenario how it all played out and it was proposed to be even shorter. So it, you know, it felt like a win getting December back, but then again, we did lose, we lost a month and, and I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there with, uh, with what's happening, but I guess, you know, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the podcast. You've, you felt like you struggled some, but, but then you, you've seen birds. Have you seen anything this season to really indicate, you know, or, or raise, raise the alarm or anything? No, I, I, I think what I've seen, you know, localized around here, it seems like it's it's down. And for a variety of reasons, like I I have never seen so many goshawks. In fact, in fact, I found a grouse that a goshawk had killed it, you know, right in our neighborhood here. So I think maybe that was, a, you know, it's my layman's um, explanation for it. But you know, I just started going to different covers and looking, you know, just different places and in different covers and. Uh, Kind of even getting out of the popple so much and having a lot more mixed cover, and you know, I, I, I'm seeing definitely a decent number of birds. So. Yeah, that's good. And I, I really bring this up not to not to point fingers at anybody or or uh, cause blame because I you know ultimately it's a passion for for this thing that we all love to do that's that's driving us all and, and and it's driving it was driving the concerns too behind you know proposing shortening the season and so i mean i can say from personal experience that i've been pretty relieved i would say to get out and i am i am finding birds and i feel like i can safely say in the covers that i have hunted i think i'm seeing i'm finding birds easier than I found them at this time last year. Now, how will the rest of my season play out and the numbers compare? Time will tell, and I'm keeping track of those numbers, so I'll be able to tell you that. But for now, my point is that I I was relieved to get out there and find birds and and find out that they weren't all gone and some foreign disease didn't kill them all. And I I, got to imagine you're happy about that as well. Yeah, I think everybody was, you know, the West Nile scared. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, we have all the answers. Um, and I think one good thing that's come out of all this is that we now have a rough grouse management plan. I, you know, I was, I was doing a little bit of writing about this shortened season deal. And I think it was with Tekka. It was said, well, we don't have a management plan. And I was like, so, you know, cut as many trees as possible. That was an official plan. He sort of laughed about that. <laughs> so I think, I think the good of it is now there's, there's, there's going to be more research. There's going to be some money put towards, um, rough grouse, which I, you know, to my discredit, I had no idea we didn't have a management plan. So I guess some good came out of it as well. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And, and I was, I was unaware of that as well until that came out. But like you said, it's, it is in the works right now and the state of Wisconsin will have a rough grouse management plan. So that is a positive thing. And on top of that, there is some fairly extensive, uh, especially relative to 
previous years, there's some fairly extensive testing going on for West Nile, and we're going to learn a little bit more this season than we have in past seasons. Did you get your hands on any of the test kits? Yeah, I just got a couple. I mean, I stopped a couple weeks ago for that. I stopped at the DNR office, and they were closed. Uh, And then I just got a couple the other day. And, in fact, I should have used them today, and I just forgot them. I think it's a half an hour after I have the blood. Um, Half an hour after you kill a bird. And it was just too long of a time period. So my next couple I hope to to do the sampling of. But I haven't, I mean, the birds that I shot this year were healthy. There was nothing wrong with those birds. Yeah, I have, I was going to ask you, it, it, had you tested a bird, I was going to ask you a, a little bit about it, but since you haven't, we'll, uh, I, I know that I have three test kits sitting in my shed that were dropped off by our mutual friend Mikey, dropped them off at my cabin, so I'll get them this weekend, and with any luck, I will get to use one, or two, or three this weekend, I hope so, but uh, losing my train of thought, what I was going to say is, I'm totally blanking on where, what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> bird numbers uh bird numbers grouse, grouse management plan yeah grouse management short, short, short season short season i think we i think we covered all that let's just uh we'll leave that there the west nile testing there and just say that uh that hopefully uh both you and i get to get to do our testing kits before the season is over oh all right that brought it back so you said that you have seen healthy birds I have seen healthy birds. I haven't seen any birds that I would consider unhealthy. I have seen some pretty small birds, I feel like. In fact, I shot two this weekend, this past weekend out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Both of them were quite small. And and I bring that up to say I'm not sure if that's necessarily a good thing, bad thing, or indifferent. Now, if you see a small bird, that would mean that possibly, possibly late hatch and possibly a, a, a hen grouse lost her, lost her nest and, and re-nested. So to see a small bird that far into the season, I, I, I suppose you could look at it, you could look at it both ways, but I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any opinions on that? Did you, have you seen any sm- well, I think, small birds? I think one, I'm always, I'm always amazed at you know, when a, you shoot a small bird, you know, when it flushes, it seems like it was a huge bird. Right, um, yeah. You, you never, I mean, I mean, once in a while I can I can get a good sight and see that it's a brown phase or a gray phase, but other than that, you really can't see them. Um, I did have, oh, this must have been three weeks ago, the dog went on point, the birds flushed, and I didn't get any shots, and then I walked a little bit further, and they're all up in this tag. There's like five of them, and they were hardly bigger than woodcock. And my wife's like, oh, look at those babies. And we just turned around and went the other way. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, eh, I can't have those. But I think shooting shooting juvenile birds in terms of population dynamics is a good thing because it means you're, you're, you know, had a good hatch. So the ratio, I think, of juveniles to adult birds, if it's low, is a bad thing. So I think you want a lot of shoot a lot of young birds as a, as a positive thing. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And I think I think that's the point. That's the point to make is that if you yeah. are seeing juvenile birds, that's a good thing. And I do recall a lot of what people were saying last year is they were shooting a lot of mature birds and not a lot of juvenile birds. Yeah, I, I shot a lot of young birds last year, but this year I shot a lot of adult birds. And again, that's maybe just, just a <laughs> Well, let's just throw it all out, Mark. Nobody know, nobody knows what's going on. Well, I think that's just some truth to that, right? I mean, yep. Yep. Um, but again, I think it's so you're one person and you're, you're in this area and it's subjective. And, you know, my my experience, maybe if you had put it together with 500 more experiences, you know, like, are you familiar with the Loyal Order of Dedicated Grouse Hunters? Yep, that, yep, I, yes, um, I am. You know, yep. that, 
that chart they send out every year, I think, is a really good indication. You know, if you've got 60 guys in Wisconsin recording, you know, their flush rates and their shots and, you know, hours they've hunted, I mean, I think that's a, a pretty thorough look at, um, you know, what's going on. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's that's where I basically took the framework for the numbers that I keep, the Ken Sabo's newsletter, Loyal, Loyal Order, Dedicated Grouse Hunters, uh, good little newsletter. And again, yeah, that is one thing that he does that is really cool is he has his members fill out a survey and he collects specific data and sends out a recap and a report. And like you said, I think that is a good reference point because you can look at the localized regions, you know, you versus other Wisconsin hunters, and you're all tracking the same numbers. And uh, I think you can you can definitely see some patterns and some consistencies there. Yeah, I think, like, I don't know how many drumming stops, you know, Wisconsin, you know, they do a spring drumming survey. I, I don't think they have even as many, you know, drumming sites as you would actually people doing, you know, individual surveys of their season. So, and I think the numbers are, at least, you know, the science we're basing it on are there. So, yeah, I like to, I always like to read that. Yeah, and... We talked about this. I talked about this at length with with Mark Wateka, and that was that the drumming survey. It's not a population census. It's a basically an indicator, and it's a survey of adult birds that survived the season. Whereas the the survey from Loyal Order of Dedicated Grouse Hunters that's a hunting survey. That's what that's what men and women got out and saw in the fall. So you could uh, you could take some more specific. Uh, examples out of a survey like that and uh and, you know that's what people saw so you're going to get a little bit of a hatch indicator in a survey like that whereas you don't get that with the drumming survey yeah i mean i i, I still you know think it's obviously 100 percent foolproof but it, it seems to be like a it's a more it's a more accurate look at what's actually going on out there all right i got a few more things to uh to chat with you about mark and they're kind of some random things i i mentioned a couple times that i spent the weekend on it uh, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, and I was with a friend of mine, AJ, and he's actually the creative director of Project Upland. And we got to spend some time in the woods together, and uh, we tend to we tend to discuss things and and uh, have some intellectual conversations, I guess, if you will. And and we started uh, hyper analyzing a few few subjects related to grouse hunting. So I thought that I would, and they were related to some specific examples. I thought I would uh, just get your opinion on them. And the, sure. the first one of those is approaching points. So you've got pointy dogs, so I can ask you this question. Your dog goes on point in the grouse woods. Do you have a specific way or method that you like to approach that point? Well, I'm left-handed, uh, so that means my gun barrel points to the right when I'm carrying my gun. So um, like some of, I mean, the person I have with most is my wife, and she's right-handed, so it's a perfect you know, fit for us. Yep. So my, my barrel points right here is points left. That means I'm going out on the right side. She's going on the left side. So I think just from that old habit, I'm, I'm often approaching the dog from the right side. But if I'm alone, I, I don't think I really think of that. But for me, if I think I've got a grouse, I, I do a wide circle, you know, try to get around it as opposed to a woodcock. I mean, a woodcock, I, I feel like you can just walk in. So if I, if I don't know what it is, you know, maybe a grouse, maybe a woodcock, I'm always, walking a you know 20 yard circle around the dog and try to come back at him i, I, mean, I just think that's the best shot you have if you can get the bird between you and, and the dog it's often a good shot so that was that was a great answer 
to the question that I asked without asking it really, because you touched on a couple things. Number one, something I have talked about on this podcast is that I've, I've, I've heard from more experienced grouse hunters and I've started to practice it myself is, is circling the dog in an attempt to get the bird between you and the dog, which does from my personal experience, give you the best opportunity at getting a shot. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. Now, the other thing that you touched on, which I find very interesting, and, and if that's the example I'm referring to from this past weekend, is if you think you have a grouse, you'll try to circle wide. And if you have a woodcock, basically you treat you you may treat either of those examples differently if you ha- if you think the dog has a woodcock pointed or if the dog has a grouse pointed. And so what happened this weekend is I think if people that have pointing dogs will will know this probably is your dog goes on point. You, you, every time the dog comes into frame, your mind's going a mile a minute and you're trying to hyperanalyze the situation. So I think it's only natural for you to, th- to think and wonder, okay, yeah, that looks like a, that looks like a probable woodcock location, maybe the way that the dog's pointing, all that stuff. And so we were moving in on a point and I, my dog was kind of twisted up. He was on point and he was kind of twisted up and it looked like he was very close to a bird. We were in, we had just transitioned out of, to, out of some mature aspen into, uh, you know, an eight or a 10 year old aspen cut. And so my mind went to Woodcock because of the, the way that the dog was positioned, the cover that we were in. And I instructed the other gunner to work right into the dog along with myself on the other side. And we basically... We moved right in on the nose of the dog and we circled a, a, a short little circle. And sure enough, a grouse blew out of a blowdown right behind us. <laughs> and yeah. we had we had no shot. And I started sort of breaking that down to AJ and explaining what 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 was going through my mind and why I sort of led us into that point that way. And we both came to the quick realization, well, why wouldn't you just and, and I and I think about this. Why don't you just treat everything like a grouse circle wide? If it's a woodcock, they're typically going to hold tight and they're still going to be there. But I don't know. Something came over me. It got the best of me. We went right into the nose. I think sometimes it's hard to just not not go right into the dog and, and hope there's a bird there. Well, I think, too, it's it's like Saturday when I, I, I think we had 46 woodcock on my counter. And it just, it's woodcock after woodcock after woodcock. Yeah. And if you want to hunt grouse, you just go in and you flush the woodcock. In fact, there was one where I could see the dog. He's 40 yards away and he's on point. I'm like, yeah, there's another woodcock. I just stood there and watched him for 10 seconds. And a grouse, you know, he's holding the point and it blows out. And I'm like, whoop, I guess I blew that one. <laughs> yep. And it was, it, was, it was wide open. He turned and flew down the trail. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I'm a complete idiot. Yeah. Um, I think, I think if I you, just, go ahead. I, I think, you know, it's, the woodcock, you know, it's like a curveball and a grouse is a fastball. If you're not, if you're not ready for a grouse, good luck. And I guess that's if I think there's any chance of being a grouse, I make a big circle. And if it's a, if it's a woodcock, you can always come up on it, right? I mean, it'll, it'll be there. It's, yeah, they hold so tight, it's, it's not gonna. Well, I've seen, I followed one that was running. They ran probably thirty yards to the woods. I was amazed this this past weekend. So they, I think they're getting more skittish. I mean, again, maybe that's just my subjective take on it, but for the most part, they're, they're going to be right there. Yeah, well, I think I think you know, in the covers that we hunt, you typically woodcock woodcock contacts are going to you're going to get you should get a lot of them if conditions are right. You should get a a good number of them, I should say, and more often than not, 
you can get very good dog work. You can get some some close points where the dog is right there. But I hear a lot of people say that woodcock run more than they used to. I don't I, I don't say that's true or not true because I haven't been hunting woodcock long enough. I, I had mentioned to you earlier, I, I've only had my first bird dog for four years, so I've been at it for, you know, five, six years kind of thing. And so I, I definitely have seen woodcock run. I've seen it this season. I've seen it in season past. So I know that they do run, but I do hear a lot of people say that they, they run more than they used to. So that very well could be true. I just don't have the perspective to. But again, that's uh, that's one of those things where, I do believe that circling ahead of the dog and trying to cut that bird off, which is hard to do on a grouse, especially if it takes you a while to get to that point. Uh, yeah, I think that, that's, that's, I mean, you got to move. I, I, I'm yep. always amazed that people sort of just saunter around. It's like, what are you doing? I guess for me, there's times I'm almost running. You know, it's like, especially in certain conditions or you see, you know, once in a while I'll see the grouse running, you know, yep. away from the point. It's like, you know, if you can don't hightail it, you're not going to get to that bird. So, yeah. I guess put your track shoes on. So I agree. I agree. And I feel like I've got this timer going in my head where the longer it's taking me to get there and, uh, you know, assess the situation and start making my move or my circle or whatever it is, I just feel like my odds are going down. You know, they're get they're getting, yeah. they're getting lower by the second. And, and if I get hung up in some brush, I, like <laughs> it gets frantic and, you know, you're trying to get there. And, you know, mainly a lot of it is if my dog's got a grouse pinned or, or it's got a grouse pointed, I want to get up there and, and reward the dang dog. You know, I, I want to do it for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, if my dog points a grouse, I'll shoot, I'll shoot my gun in the air. <laughs> you know, just, you know, it's, there's, there's your reward. So that's a good point. Yeah. I've, I've actually have not done that. And, uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I'll have to start doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just literally will just shoot my gun in the air if, if it's a good point. So. Yeah. I guess maybe uh, I have too many shells later. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the everybody knows you don't always get a shot at a grouse, even a pointed grouse. You're not always going to get a shot. And so if that's what we want the dogs to do and the, the shot is a reward, which it which it should be, um, that's that's pretty good sound theory, I would say. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's my theory or sound theory, but I guess it's just something I'm my dogs appreciate so. Um. <laughs> All right, here's another one for you. You mentioned blowdowns earlier, and I typically f- you'll find a lot of blowdowns in more mature forest. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, people talk about grouse, they talk about aspen, they talk about cuts, which is which is a which is a big component to finding finding grouse and finding good habitat that supports the birds across, you know, all the habitat that they use. But the grouse are not always in eight to 10 year old aspen cuts. And, uh, we're not, we're not breaking news to, to seasoned grouse hunters, but, uh, to somebody starting, starting new to this, uh, I, I couldn't blame them if they were to think that all they had to do was walk down the middle of a eight to 10 year old aspen cut and they would find all the grouse in the world. That's not necessarily the case. Do you find yourself do you find yourself targeting those more mature areas with blowdowns and deadfall, you know, more often than you would target a specific cut, or how do you incorporate that into your hunts? Well, I guess for me, I I think grouse like really brushy places. Yep. I mean, they, they they still need that that cover, so you, know, you just can't walk through the maple woods and you know where you can see for a hundred yards. And you probably you know who knows maybe you'll see a bird in there because I'm surprised at the places I'll see grouse, but. They like that brushy stuff, but for me, it's just like if my dog goes on point, 
I mean, like I had one yesterday. He's on the other side of the blowout. He's looking right at me. It's like, well, there's one in there. Um, or two in there, three in there, you know? Yeah. And actually, there was five. There were five. I didn't get any of them because it was so, so brushy. But, um, I mean, if that happens to me, it's like that, that's a dead giveaway. You got a bird in there. So for me, that's, I guess it's just an alarm bell that goes off in my head if, if the dog's point at a brush pile. Yep, I definitely would agree on, on both accounts in that, you know, the, the biologists that I used to work with at the Rap Grouse Society, they, they put it in a, in a great way, being not cover type specific, but they would always refer to stem density. And they're not specifically talking about aspen. They could be talking about hazel brush or tag alders or anything, really. So it's stem, yeah, I mean, stem density. I'm, I'm sometimes surprised, like, you know, a little maple whips, you'll see them. Yep. You know, that kind of makes, makes cover, so... But yeah, I don't know if you can, you know, there's so many blowdowns <laughs> all over the place, right? I mean, if you're in a mature woods, there's going to be blowdowns. So, yeah. uh, I guess for me, it's just a spot that, you know, they could be lurking in there, so... Yeah, well, I think I think you touched on it in the right way, and that is when you are, yeah, because spend any time in the grouse woods, you're going to find blowdowns, and I'm I'm not saying go kick around under every one, but if your dog goes on point, or let's say you got a flushing dog, your dog's getting birdie near a blowdown. I mean, I with a pointing dog, it's approaching that point again, circle, get on the other side of that blowdown as fast as you can, because that's more than likely. He, he knows where the dog's at, and he wants to go the other way. So if you can squeeze them, I've got one one memory in my mind, vivid, vivid memory from last year in October, uh, November. Sorry, November. I was hunting in, in northern Wisconsin, and my dog was on point. I circled. There was, a, there was a deadfall right in front of him. I squeezed in on the other side, and I saw the grouse's head sticking up right before he took off, and I was actually able to put that bird in the bag. But, again, good point. When when you see a blowdown and your dog's on point nearby, that's that's your that's your point of interest. Yeah, it helps that I, I had a time once and there was a blowdown and my wife looked in and she could see the bird. <laughs> yeah, like, well, shake it, you know, you have somebody there taking it, shaking it. Um, you're ready to shoot. So yeah, yeah, and I I don't that's that's one thing where I don't know. You know, I've, I've heard people say when you're approaching a point, just look up. Don't even bother trying to spot the bird on the ground. I think sometimes that's tough to do. Um, in recent memory, I've had a number of occasions where I have spotted the grouse on the ground with my dog on point, and I've, I've actually done pretty well on those, on those scenarios. And, and I don't know that it's, you know, I could, I could definitely see somebody saying it the other way where once you see it on the ground, then you're, it's a lost cause because you're going to be thinking too much. But do you have any experience with that? Well, I, I, for me, I've always thought if you're looking at the ground, maybe it's, it takes you longer to get your eyes back up. Sure. So you can shoot. I don't, I don't know if necessarily looking on the ground is, is a bad thing. I think anytime I'm walking on a point, I'm looking pretty low. I don't, I don't know if you've analyzed that before, but I don't know if I'm necessarily looking for the bird on the ground, but I'm sort of looking where the dog's looking. Yeah, I, for me, I think I think it's worse with woodcock because you can always, you know, how many times you see woodcock? Oh, yeah. there it is, right there. In fact, sometimes you play the game where you try to, to find them on the ground. Yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe it's something about their eyes, those big liquid orbs. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to shoot the bird. You feel sorry for it. Right, um, right, yeah. Um, but I, I don't feel that way about grouse. So um, <laughs> maybe that. But I, I just don't see nearly as many grouse on the ground as I do woodcock. Yeah. They are they are very good at disguising themselves until they want to scare the you know what out of you and, uh, yeah. and then it's just uh, then it's on at that point. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm sort of amazed sometimes. I had a point today where there was like no ground cover and the birds flushed. And I think, how did I not see that? Yeah, I can recall. I can recall a, a similar example last year, and this is this is kind of a funny story, actually. Uh, in in Wisconsin, my buddy and I were checking out a new spot, and we pulled in off the highway onto the gravel, and we only had about a mile, maybe a mile to go to get to this spot, and I think we saw four grouse between where we turned off the highway and when we actually got to the spot that we were going to four grouse and they were on either side it was there was some low cover but it was really big mature i think it was mature maple uh just what open open ground just really open ground and for whatever reason we saw four grouse there i came back about a week or two later i was with my dad and uh, this was in December. We had a really nice early December weekend last year. It was like 40 degrees. I don't know if you remember that. But we uh, we went out. We had a really nice hunt. Hunted the, all the stuff that you would normally hunt. The aspen cut, the nice mature edges, all that stuff. We got back to the truck, and I said, you know what, Dad? I saw We saw four grouse along the road here. Let's just go take a walk in through here. And so, I mean, I'm telling you, this stuff was wide open. You could see, like you said, in those maple forests, you could see 100 yards on the ground, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing in here, but I'm going to let the dog roll a little bit. Sure enough, my dog goes on point. I walk in. I feel I felt like I could see every inch of ground near that dog. And I got to about 10 feet from the dog, and a grouse blew out five feet off of his nose and flew straight away from me. I, I actually hit it. I couldn't believe it. But just just like you said, you know, sometimes it's amazing that you can't even see them there. Yeah, I mean, I've, but I've had turkeys come out of the tree. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think my dogs have pointed, pointed half a dozen turkeys over the years. It, it, I mean, think how big those things are. It's like, where, <laughs> you know, where did that thing come from? Right. Uh, now, that's a heart attack, a turkey point. So. I believe it. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Mark. I really, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Uh, one final closing question for you. We've got a lot of listeners to this podcast that are, at least I hope, that are new to upland hunting. They're just getting their feet wet, just getting started. To those new upland hunters and all your years of experience, to somebody uh, just getting started, any any words of wisdom, uh, advice for them? Mm, I guess it were me just getting started, I'd find somebody that grows hunting to go with them. Um, there you go. They live in Wisconsin, buy them a case of beer, and say, let's go bird hunting. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, I appreciate that, Mark. And like I said, I, I really do appreciate your time on the podcast. I, this was this was fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And uh, would love to have you back on. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll run into you out in the out in the grouse woods over in Wisconsin one of these days. We can have a beer together. Yeah, have a good season. All right, buddy. Good luck the rest of the way. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. We'd like to thank all of our partners on the podcast as they help bring you the listener each and every episode pine ridge grouse camp onyx maps and gum leaf boots please check out their websites check out their operations and support them as they continue to support the project upland podcast head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff videos articles from project upland and northwoods collective check it out there at projectupland.com Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by doing any 
and or all of these things, leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, hit that little subscribe button, share the podcast post, and please reach out to us, send us your feedback, your thoughts on the show, and your suggestions for future episodes. I'm an Upland hunter. I love to hear from other Upland hunters. Tell me your story. Reach out to me. Use the contact form at the Project Upland website or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.